I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It is time for Unearthed. This is our unearthed installments to to close out the year 2022. We know it's 2023 when it's actually coming out. Uh, For folks who maybe are new to the show or don't remember, this is when we talk about things that have been literally and figuratively unearthed over the last three months. So in this case, it's October, November, December of 2022. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about a whole bunch of updates So things we've talked about before on the show, either on Unearthed or otherwise, as well as a whole bunch of shipwrecks and a whole bunch of repatriations. Just the updates, shipwrecks, and repatriations, that was enough for one whole episode. Um, Part two on Wednesday, we'll be talking about the edibles and the potables and the art and some animals and some other stuff. So we can just get started. Right. So first, we've had several updates about the search for victims of the Tulsa massacre, which we first covered on the show in July of 2014. Investigations continued at Oaklawn Cemetery in October and November of last year, with crews finding 32 total burials and exhuming the remains of eight people so they could be examined. So this is an ongoing process. It's kind of a multi-step thing. First, they are examining the burials themselves to try to determine whether they were likely connected to the massacre. From there, they decide which ones they should exhume. And then they need to examine the remains that have been exhumed to try to identify them if possible. So while investigators have found some burial sites and conducted some exhumations, the investigations with this are still ongoing. 
research published in the journal The Holocene has proposed a new explanation for how and when the person known as Utzi the Iceman died and how his body came to be preserved in the ice. The most widely accepted idea before this point has been that Utzi died in the autumn more than 5,000 years ago and that his body was quickly buried in snow where it essentially was freeze-dried and then encased under glacial ice. According to this idea, it remained undisturbed for thousands of years before being found by hikers in 1991. But this newly published research calls really all of that into question, suggesting that instead, based on the stomach contents and analysis of plant material found around him, Utzi really died in the spring, not the fall, so his body would have been exposed to the elements all through the summer rather than immediately being buried in the snow. Radiocarbon dating also suggests that some of the material found around him is newer than his body is, so that suggests that he was not completely buried in the ice that whole time, but instead was exposed at various points, that additional material then being frozen in there with him later. So that's something that they think recurred several times in the centuries between his death and his discovery. This research even suggests that Utzi did not die in the place where his body was found, but that in all of this melting and refreezing, his body was pushed down from a higher elevation. So that initial description of what might have happened to Utzi that I talked about before this last explanation by Tracy It's a pretty unlikely series of events. It's often described as a series of miracles. And back in 1991, a lot of researchers thought that Utzi was fairly or even entirely unique. But this new proposal suggests a process that's a lot less miraculous and more commonplace, meaning that there could be other bodies like Utzi's out there, which will be found as global temperatures continue to rise and glacial ice continues to melt. There have also been other remains and artifacts exposed through the melting ice in the decades since Utzi was found, so it has already become clear that he's really not quite one of a kind. Yeah, no shade to Utzi. (laughs) Just saying. It's not a totally unique in the entire world scenario. Prior hosts of the show did an episode on Utzi in January of 2012. And then we have had a lot of Utzi updates on various installments of Unearthed since then. He also appears on an episode I have been working on in the background for a long time, and we'll see if I ever get my act fully together on it, but fingers crossed. I'll look forward to it. (laughs) An ichthyosaur fossil, believed to have been collected by Mary Anning, was excavated from southern England in 1818. We most recently ran past host's episode on Mary Anning as a Saturday classic in September of 2018. This fossil is believed to be the first complete ichthyosaur fossil ever found, but it was placed in the collections of the Royal College of Surgeons in London and it was destroyed there when the city was bombed during World War II. So the specimen at that point was believed to have been totally lost aside from a scientific illustration that had been made in the 19th century. But in 2016 and 2019, researchers found two different casts of it in two different collections, one at Yale University's Peabody Museum and the other at Berlin's Natural History Museum. And the cast in Berlin wasn't listed in the museum's records. A paper on the discovery of these casts was published in Royal Society Open Science in November, 
And it points out that old casts like these can have historical and scientific importance, but are often overlooked. In this case, the two casts have verified the accuracy of most of the scientific illustration that still survived, while also showing a couple of spots where the illustration didn't quite capture the specimen. It also notes that there may still be other casts of this same specimen in other museums' collections. Yeah, it was one of those things where people were like, that looks familiar to me. Wait, (laughs) it's something we thought had been totally destroyed that we actually have this cast of. Moving on, in our previous installment of Unearthed, we talked about the Somerton Man. That is a previously unidentified body who had washed up in Australia. We talked about the announcement that a pair of researchers had concluded that this person was Carl Webb, known as Charles. So police in Australia have also been conducting their own investigation into the Somerton Man's identity. They have not released their results or confirmed this investigation. But one of the two researchers involved in that investigation, Derek Abbott of Adelaide University, has contacted members of the Webb family to try to find more information about Charles and to just confirm this identification. That conversation unearthed a photo album containing family photos, including a Charlie Webb, as well as a group photo of the Swinburne Technical College under-16 football team one of whom is listed as C-Webb. One family member also underwent DNA testing to confirm a link to Charles Webb. In another update to an earlier episode of Unearthed, in July, we talked about the discovery of a lead sarcophagus at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The sarcophagus was found during work to rebuild the cathedral's spire following the fire that damaged it very badly in 2019. So there were actually two sarcophagi found. There was only one that was known when we talked about this. The second was found. Also, there were statues, sculptures, and other items discovered. Both of these sarcophagi have now been opened. One was marked with a brass plaque saying that it belonged to Antoine de la Porte, the canon of Notre Dame Cathedral, who died in 1710. The identity of the other is not known, but has been nicknamed Le Cavalier, This is believed to be the body of an affluent man in his 30s who died as long ago as the 14th century. Based on where he was buried, he would have been someone important. But other than that, not much is known. Yeah, it's a little unclear whether anybody will be able to figure out exactly who this was. It kind of depends on exactly how old that body was because records before a certain point no longer exist. Moving on. In 2017, we did a two-part episode on Executive Order 9066 and the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. While researching the people who had been incarcerated, Duncan Reichen Williams, director of the University of Southern California's Shinso Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture, realized that there was no complete sort of master list of everybody who had been imprisoned under this order. So, he assembled a team of researchers and volunteers to create one, compiling and cross-referencing records from all of the various camps. The result is a sacred book called Irecho, which is a hand-bound, thousand-page book containing 125,284 names. This is the first attempt at a comprehensive list of everyone the United States imprisoned in these camps. The names are also displayed on a website arranged by birth year. 
The book itself is currently on display at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles, California, where visitors are invited to view the book and to use a special hanko or signature seal to stamp up to six names in the book. Although a person doesn't have to be a survivor of one of the camps or a friend or relative of somebody who was incarcerated there to stamp one of the names, this is a process that they're hoping will help verify the names in the book. So people have an opportunity to do things like correct misspellings or add people in who might have been omitted in spite of all the research that went into this. Back in 2018, we did an episode on the last Carolina parakeet and other endlings, or the last known member of a species to live before it becomes extinct. One of the ones we mentioned was the last Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, who died at Hobart Zoo in Australia in 1936. Although the animal's skeleton and skin were preserved and given to the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, they later disappeared. Eventually, people concluded that they must have been thrown away. But after somebody found an unpublished taxidermist's report, the museum conducted a search and they wound up finding the skin and skeleton in a cupboard in the museum's education department. Because this was in very good condition, staff had used it as part of traveling educational exhibits. Sort of like, we need to take an example to show people this is the best one we have, so it's what we'll take with us, not realizing exactly what it was, and that it was the last thylacine. So now this is on display at the museum. And for our last update, the Herschel Museum of Astronomy in Bath, England, has acquired a handwritten copy of Caroline Herschel's memoir, which contains material that was removed when it was edited and published. This will be going on display at the Herschel Museum of Astronomy, which is housed in the Herschel's home. This was an important acquisition for the museum. Most of Caroline's own documents and personal papers are still held by the Herschel family, so they're not necessarily available for the public to see. And most of the items that are on display at the museum are on loan rather than being owned by the museum. This is only the second artifact directly connected to Caroline that the museum has been able to purchase, although acquiring more items for the museum's permanent collection is one of its priorities. Our episode on Caroline Herschel came out as a Saturday classic in March of 2019. Uh, And now we're going to take a quick sponsor break before we get on to the shipwrecks. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today we have about a jillion shipwrecked discoveries uh, and also some research done at, at shipwreck sites that were previously known about, but this research is new. First, researchers in the North Sea have been trying to figure out whether wartime shipwrecks are polluting the water there and whether that pollution means that these wrecks should be removed. In this case, they focused on the V-1302 John Mann, German ship that was sunk by the Royal Air Force in February of 1942. Based on their research, yes, this particular wreck is leaking toxic chemicals into the water, including nickel, copper, and arsenic, as well as chemicals found in fossil fuels and explosives. The amounts of the substances are, at this point, fairly small, although polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs, which are found in fossil fuels, are altering the ecosystem around the ship. And this is one of many wartime shipwrecks in the area. Other ships may present bigger problems. Next up, after being on hold due to the COVID-19 pandemic, dives and excavations have resumed at the site of the HMS Erebus, which was one of the ships that was lost during Captain John Franklin's attempt to navigate the Northwest Passage. That attempt started in 1845. Researchers have recovered more than 275 artifacts, including an embossed leather folio with a quill tucked inside. Although it is not yet known whose folio this was or what was written inside of it, divers discovered this as the most remarkable find of the season. Because of the conditions of the Arctic waters where these ships went down, diving is possible only in the summer and using special equipment to help keep divers warm. Divers didn't visit the other ship, the HMS Terror, during last summer's dives because it is in much deeper water. So archaeologists consider it to be more secure than the Erebus. Yeah, they're prioritizing the Erebus since it's a little bit more threatened. The team conducted 56 dives during this very narrow diving window, and they focused a lot of their efforts on the steward's pantry on the ship. So they brought up a lot of tableware. 
Next, in the late 19th century, an unusual ship design was developed almost exclusively to move freight around the Great Lakes. It's called the whaleback. Although some of these vessels were later moved and used in other bodies of water, only 44 of them were ever made, and all but two of those were made for use in the Great Lakes. The name comes from its appearance, looking a little bit like the back of a whale. They're shaped almost like a cigar, with the ends curved slightly upward and ending in a blunted-off shape, almost like a pig snout. Barge 129 was a whaleback ship that collided with another vessel during a storm on October 13, 1902. Although the crew managed to evacuate to that other ship, Barge 129 sank. A remote-operated vehicle captured the first images of the vessel on the floor of the lake in 2021, and its identification was announced late last year. This was the last as-yet-undiscovered wreck of a whaleback ship. So, of all the ones that had wrecked, this was the only one that, until now, we didn't know exactly where it was. A wreck known as the Skafto was found by a diver off the coast of Sweden in 2003. And although investigations were conducted in the years that immediately followed, a new analysis of the ship and its cargo was just published last year. And this research has formed sort of a snapshot of maritime trade in Northern Europe during the 15th century. For example, the ship was made of timber that was cut down between 1437 and 1439 while the trees that it was carrying as cargo date to 1440 to 1443. So it seems like this ship went down not long after it was built. The cargo included pieces of copper that had been mined in two regions of what's now Slovakia. There were bricks from Poland, and Poland was also probably the source of the timber. Quicklime came from the island of Gutland in Sweden. Together, the various types of cargo identified and their origin points suggest that the ship was departing from the Hanseatic League port known as Gdansk, now Danzig, probably bound for Bruges. I just thought it was interesting how this provided like one snapshot of this interconnected trade network. In other news, Myrsa is the largest lake in Norway, and it serves as a source of drinking water for about 100,000 people. But... It has also been used as a munitions dump. So researchers started a project to survey the floor of the lake and to map all of the dump sites using high-resolution sonar, ultimate goal being to clean up the lake. In the process of this mapping, they also found what appears to be an extremely well-preserved shipwreck. Very little is known about the wreck at this point. It is estimated as dating back to somewhere between 1300 and 1850, so that is quite a time span. Uh, That's called hedging your bets on the guess. (laughs) It is extremely well-preserved, apart from a little bit of corrosion in some of the nails used in its construction. One reason all of this seems pretty vague is that there were attempts to send a remotely operated vehicle to capture images of the wreck, which might have helped learn more about it, but that had to be scrubbed due to weather. So researchers are hoping to try again next year, maybe get some pictures and clear some things up. And in similar, we don't know what this might be news. Nantucket resident Matthew Palka found what appears to be the remains of a shipwreck while out on the beach in early December. The area in and around the island of Nantucket is home to a lot of shipwrecks, but at this point, there's not a clear sense of which one this might be. 
there's some speculation that it might be the remains of a 19th or early 20th century vessel used to ferry cargo to and from the island, rather than something that was meant for longer voyages. Regardless, just stumbling over the decaying timbers of a wrecked ship while out on a local beach seems like it would be quite the experience. Yes, just sort of like, is that a, is that a shipwreck? Looks kind of like part of a ship. Uh, two more medieval cogs have been discovered in a lake in Sweden, this time during construction of a railway tunnel. They've been nicknamed Varbergskagen 1 and 2 after their location, which was found near Varberg. Cogs have come up on several installments of Unearthed, and this is the third cog that we have talked about from 2022, but this type of ship is actually pretty rare. Only seven of them have been found in Sweden. Only 30 or so have been found in all of Europe. Um, I had this moment where I was like, I keep reading about how rare these ships were, but I feel like we've been talking about them a lot. So finding two of them together is pretty unusual. Both cogs have been dated to the 14th century using tree ring analysis of the timbers that were used to build them. Also in Sweden, maritime archaeologists have found the Oplet, which was the sister ship to the 17th century warship Vasa. The Vasa sank on its first voyage in 1628 and was covered by previous hosts of the show in the 2011 episode, More Shipwreck Stories, Battleships. The applet was built by the same shipbuilder as the Vasa and was launched a year later, with both ships having pretty similar dimensions and construction. The applet was in active service during the Thirty Years' War, and that active service continued until 1658. And then a year after that, during the Second Northern War, it was intentionally sunk along with several other ships. This was an attempt to block off a strait that could be used to attack Stockholm by sea. Just in case you're thinking, wait, the Oplet sounds familiar somehow. Uh, In Unearthed in July 2021, we talked about the discovery of a wreck that was, at first, believed to be the Oplet, but that turned out to be two other wrecks, the Apollo and Maria. In other news, a nearly intact 17th century dress, which was probably a wedding dress, was pulled from a shipwreck off the Wadden Islands in the Netherlands back in 2014, and it was put on public display for the first time this past November at the Museum Kapskill. This dress was one of a lot of garments and other textiles that were part of this wreck's cargo, but it really took a while for conservators to figure out what exactly it was. Some of this was because of the time that it had been in the water, like the damage that it had faced while being submerged, but it also had to do with the nature of the garment itself. The various parts of this dress would have been pieced together by a maid while the wearer was being dressed So it wasn't like one dress that you would just pick up and it's a whole thing. There were lots of different pieces to be put together. Yeah, if you've ever looked at like particularly, you know, Rococo era dresses, you see that some pieces literally get pinned together while you're getting dressed. Yeah. This is not a pull-on situation. No. (laughs) Uh, So in this case, conservators believe that this was a wedding dress, in part because the fabric is woven with a pattern of silver pieces known as a love knot. This would have made it very expensive, so it probably belonged to a very wealthy person or a member of the nobility. And in our last find, which is more shipwreck adjacent than really about shipwrecks, a documentary film crew looking for the submerged remains of World War II-era aircraft 
found a piece of the space shuttle Challenger off the eastern coast of Florida. Divers pretty immediately realized what it was because of the recognizable pattern of tiles that acted as a heat shield during a shuttle's re-entry into the atmosphere. If you are younger than Holly and I, the Challenger exploded shortly after liftoff on January 28, 1986, on what was supposed to be its 10th flight and the first flight of an American civilian in space. NASA confirmed this find, which is one of the largest single pieces of the Challenger that has been found in a statement in November. So let's take a break, and then we will dive into repatriations. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Next, we have quite a number of repatriations to talk about, some of them in a fair amount of detail. In November, members of the Oglala Sioux and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes traveled to Barrie, Massachusetts to take custody of more than 150 items, including weapons, clothing, pipes, and other belongings. These had been in the collection of the Founders Museum in Barrie for more than 100 years. 
A lot of these items are from the collection of Frank Root, who was a 19th century traveling shoe salesman who lived in Barrie. He was a collector of indigenous artwork and cultural items, and he kind of made a showcase out of his collection and then donated it to the town library in 1892. Root purchased some of these items while traveling from people who were selling things that they had made or owned to tourists. But some are also directly connected to the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre. Root bought them from someone who had been contracted to clear the massacre site after it was over. According to tribal members who were present at the ceremony where these items were returned, they will be stored at the Ogala Lakota College as these communities decide what to do with everything. Everything has been authenticated, but there are still some questions to be resolved, like if anything needs to be returned to a specific family, and how to most respectfully treat anything that was connected to the massacre. Members of multiple Lakota tribes, including descendants of Wounded Knee survivors, have been trying to have these items returned for decades. This is one of many collections that became more widely known after the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, was passed in 1990. Efforts to have these items returned have been going on at least since the early 1990s, with one early proposal being for the museum to return the original items while indigenous communities made replicas to serve as replacements. A group of Wounded Knee descendants traveled to Barrie this past April to visit the museum and again asked for the item's return. So NAGPRA doesn't directly apply to this particular museum. This law is focused on federal agencies and institutions receiving federal funds. And the Founders Museum in Barrie is a small collection that's housed within the Woods Memorial Library and it doesn't receive federal funds. The Barry Museum Association and Barry Library Association did, however, consult with a NAGPRA specialist on how to return these items. Those consultations started earlier in 2022. After all this, there were still more than 100 items in the museum's collection that likely belonged to an indigenous nation. So the process is still ongoing to determine how those items should be returned. Next, Colgate University returned about 1,500 items to the Oneida Nation in November. These items are from a collection that the university acquired in 1959 and had been housed at the Longyear Museum of Cultural Anthropology. These had been collected by Herbert Bigford Sr. between 1924 and 1957. These were belongings that had been buried with people in sites around upstate New York, News reports describe Bigford as an amateur archaeologist and as secretary for an organization whose members went on so-called digging tours in the summertime. This is part of an ongoing process involving the university and the Oneida Nation to return objects that started in the 1990s. And just as a side note here, I really do not know anything about Herbert Bigford Sr. I don't know what relationship he had with the Oneida people, if any, or what kind of archaeological training he had, if any, or what kind of standards this organization he was part of had for their so-called digging tours, if any, again. But there is a long, long history of non-Indigenous people in North America just feeling entitled to go dig up the graves of Indigenous people and keep whatever they want. This has been going on for centuries. 
There are written accounts from, like, literally some of the earliest colonists in North America. It is still going on. So we have talked a lot on the show about the fields of archaeology and anthropology and museums and other institutions sort of examining their acquisition practices and their collections and making formal efforts to repatriate culturally important items and belongings. But there is also this whole other aspect of just ordinary random people who have no institutional connection, who are private citizens acting on their own who, like, the things they have taken haven't necessarily made their way into an institution that might be going through this kind of process. And speaking of institutions revisiting their practices, the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University has announced its intent to return a collection of hair samples taken from 700 indigenous children, which has been in the museum's collection for more than 80 years. Anthropologist George Edward Woodbury collected this hair from indigenous children who were attending government-run boarding schools between 1930 and 1933. So the reaction from indigenous communities to this announcement was largely one of just heartbroken horror and outrage. These schools, the boarding schools, they have a painful and deeply traumatic legacy. We've talked about them on the show a number of times. They were an act of cultural genocide, and hundreds of children died while attending them. So in many indigenous nations, hair also has a very special cultural and religious significance. And that means the idea that vulnerable children's hair was being taken from them at these schools and then kept in a museum, that was just particularly violating. In November, 25 items were returned to the organized village of Cake from George Fox University in Oregon. These items had been identified in 2018 when Frank Hughes, a member of the Cake Village Council, was working at the university as NAGPRA coordinator. The items include a mask, woven baskets, and headdresses, some of which may have been given to visitors as gifts, but some of which were probably taken by missionaries in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. One piece in particular is a wooden mask that was used to identify territory, and it could only have been removed if someone cut it off the tree that it was on. The organized village of cake is in Alaska, which I neglected to put in that paragraph. And this was a sort of surprising thing because um, Hughes obviously knew that he was going to be looking at items that needed to be returned to various nations, did not expect that there was going to be something from his tribe where he lives uh, to be part of that. Um, Moving on to repatriations to nations that are located outside of the United States, Six artifacts have been returned to Turkey from the United States. That happened on October 22nd. These included items that were seized from two different auction houses and one private collector, and they included life-sized statues, including a bronze statue of Roman Emperor Lucius Verus, and there was also a Roman-era sarcophagus that was returned as part of this. The Netherlands has repatriated 223 pre-Hispanic artifacts to Mexico, part of an ongoing effort by the Mexican government to reclaim its cultural heritage from other nations. The oldest of these pieces date back to the 13th century BCE, and they are from cultures from around most of what's now Mexico. These items are now with Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History for analysis and conservation. 
The University of Cork has announced plans to return artifacts, including a wooden sarcophagus and mummified remains to Egypt. That return is supposed to happen in 2023. The sarcophagus and the remains were both donated to the university, and other items, including a set of four canopic jars, are also among these items that are being returned, but it is less clear how they became part of the university's collections. A set of ancient seals is being returned to Iraq from the United States after they were listed in an online auction site in 2021. These items had been looted from the Iraq Museum in Baghdad in 2003 following the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Four of them are cylinder seals, which made an impression when rolled across the surface. Three of them are stamps. They are just a few of the hundreds of thousands of items that were stolen from Iraq in the wake of that invasion. Next up, Pope Francis has announced a plan to return three pieces of the Parthenon to Greece. These items have been held in the Vatican City Museums. And in response to this announcement, the Greek Ministry of Culture and Sports called for the return of the many similar items that are currently being held by the British Museum. Those are known as the Parthenon Marbles or the Elgin Marbles. We covered them as a two-part episode back in 2020. And we have a few updates that are all related to the Benin bronzes and other items taken from the Kingdom of Benin. We've previously talked about Germany's announcement of a plan to return more than 1,000 items to Nigerian authorities. That process is underway now, with 92 sculptures being delivered to Nigeria by the city of Cologne. Cambridge University has also announced a plan to return 116 artifacts to Nigeria from its Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. As we talked about in more detail in our episode on the Benin Bronzes, one of the complexities of all of this is that the Kingdom of Benin still exists, but not as an internationally recognized political entity. So, Most of the time, uh, items that are being returned are going to Nigeria, which is the nation that exists today in the same general area that the Kingdom of Benin occupied. We have also talked about the Smithsonian's announcement of a plan to return the Benin bronzes that are in its collection. An organization called the Restitution Study Group has filed suit against the Smithsonian to try to stop that effort. The organization's argument is that returning these items to Nigeria prevents the descendants of enslaved people now living in the U.S. from being able to access parts of their heritage. However, at this point, 29 items that were in the Smithsonian's collections have already been transferred to Nigeria, with nine others remaining on long-term loan. So that is where we will end Unearthed in 2022 Part 1. We will have more stuff on Wednesday. Before listener mail, I have a quick correction. Uh, When we were doing our episode on Irving Berlin, we talked about the Marx Brothers movie, The Coconuts. Yes! um, And made a random side comment. We were talking about how this movie, as many Marx Brothers movies were, was like more a vehicle for their comedic chaos than like something driven by a plot, right? Um, and there was a side comment about who poked who in the eye, and we have gotten a number of emails from people who have pointed out that the Marx Brothers comedy did not generally involve poking one another in the eye. That was something more associated with the Three Stooges, 
Right. Um, so the Marx Brothers did have, like, some physical comedy and some slapstick, but they also had a lot of wordplay and a lot of, like, physical humor. Sometimes when you're watching a Marx Brothers movie, it's like there's a verbal joke that goes around and around in circles until it becomes really absurd. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we made uh, an example that had more to do with a different comedy group simultaneously, though. There has been a very dismissive tone in some of these emails, uh, making it sound like the Three Stooges were just slapstick with nothing else involved. When the Three Stooges comedy could also be very subversive and Mm -hmm. also be, like, very pointed in terms of social commentary. Uh, I found this not just in the emails that we got, but also more broadly on the internet. There are a lot of people who seem very angry that people sometimes confuse the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges um, and make it sound like the Three Stooges were just slapping each other with no rhyme or reason, when really it was like part of something that wove in a lot of uh, often social commentary and satire and not just like poking each other in the eye with, nothing else happening on screen. Right. One, I will say, when I realized this when someone sent us the first correction, I was morbidly embarrassed because, dude, I wore Groucho Marx glasses to my wedding. But um, that that is the product of us trying to get a lot of episodes ready at the end of the year. But the other thing related to what you were just saying is that it is a little bit, I don't know if dismaying is the right word. I grow chagrin when people um, act as though that, comparison and that confusion I think happens a lot which is why people get frustrated by it but my other thing is like it's not an insult to confuse someone with the three stooges they are eye pokey at times but like as you said there's a lot of very smart they're using the the construct of them being buffoons to really lampoon a lot of people without them realizing it at the time because they thought oh they're three doofuses right Right. So, I'm sorry we... I don't know if confused one for the other is right. Like, I'm sorry we, we in an unscripted moment, gave a wrong example of what we were trying to say. I don't really think we besmirched the name of the Marx Brothers by invoking the Three Stooges, because I, I don't think the Three Stooges need to be dismissed out of hand as purposeless violence, which is sort of how uh, some of these things have characterized them. So, uh, I also have an actual email. uh, And this email is from all the way back in November of 2022 because it's related to our previous installment of Unearthed, and I meant to read it before now and I forgot. This is from Hannah. And Hannah said, Dear Tracy and Holly, as always, I enjoyed the seasonal unearthed episodes. Coincidentally, part two aired a few days after I participated in a three-day conference about the Jews of medieval England. It was a rich and diverse workshop bringing together researchers to discuss topics from tax and court records to manuscript glosses from material culture and architecture to curating museum exhibitions and methodology. Over dinner, I asked Dr. Dean Irwin for his opinion on the recently published article about the possible identification of the skeletons found in the well in Norwich as Jews who fell victim to violence in the 12th century. Dr. Irwin shared with me his skepticism of this conclusion and that from his familiarity with the historical records, it is more likely that the remains are those of people who were recent immigrants to the area from the continent and not of members of the well-established local Jewish community. 
the disappearance of local people whose presence was documented by the Crown for taxation purposes would not have gone unnoticed in the legal records of the time, yet no fine or other recourse is recorded. Hanna included a, a link to Dr. Irwin's remarks and went on to say, I found this discussion a fascinating example of how our reading of history is ongoing and how many factors contribute to trying to achieve a more insightful understanding of the past, incorporating cutting-edge DNA technology or medieval archival documents. Thank you again for continuing to create one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, and that, again, was from Hanna. Um, so... Thank you so much for this email. I am sorry that I neglected it to read it back when it uh, when it originally came to us. Um, I found this really interesting, not just because of it adding another dimension to that discovery that we talked about, but also because this comes up a lot, I think, when there is new DNA research. Sometimes historians will say, hey, but we actually already had some written documentation about this that either confirms what the DNA research said or totally raises questions about whether that's actually the case or not. So I found this to be an interesting example of how DNA research and uh, written historical records are both part of understanding all of this. Um, so thank you again to Hannah for sending this email. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. We're also all over social media at Missing History, where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.